each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When human beings seek security and safety, they base their defense on brick and mortar buttressed by a fierce criticism of those they deem unrighteous. But what to do when that criticism bounces back like a missile, and your only defense is the stone of instruction which you rejected? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 40 to 45. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 353 of the Bible as Literature podcast, this tension that we've been discussing in Scripture with respect to the things that human beings build with their own hands is a central topic in Matthew 21. We are coming up on the end of the chapter where Jesus consolidates this judgment, this instruction. Remember that the instruction is judgment and judgment is instruction in Scripture. The instruction is grace, and judgment is love in Scripture, because the instruction which judges you is unto your edification. So the fact that Matthew is still using up space on the page to explain to you that the thing you're trying to build with your own hands is under judgment means that there is hope. And that is the hope of the coming Lord. That is why hope and destruction are linked in Scripture. In human terms, hope and construction are linked, but in Scripture, hope and destruction are linked. Hope and destruction are linked because the basic vulnerability of the human being who faces his or her own death down the line ultimately does not decide his or her own fate only God has a say in what happens. That's why the discussion and the arguing and the fighting is so violent in its rhetoric. People want to have a handle on it. They can't stand the vulnerability and the uncertainty of leaving it up to the Lord to decide. Whoever is decided in the election is the one who God chose. That's it. That's how we have to understand it. And whatever side you're on, knowing that God may choose the other side makes us a little crazy. Now, remember when we first were talking about the book of Matthew, we were talking about it as the book of the kingdom. It's the one where the kingdom of God keeps coming through. And this is what is so hard for people to understand, especially these people who are in Jerusalem. We have to decide whether Jerusalem belongs to the Romans or the Jews, whether D.C. belongs to the Republicans or the Democrats. When Jesus enters Jerusalem and curses the fig tree, he's saying 
this city is this vineyard that I was just talking about in the previous parable. And those who dwell in it have a duty to provide the fruit of the land to God. As Jesus enters in, he's reminding them that it belongs neither to the Romans nor to the Jews, neither to the Democrats nor to the Republicans. This city belongs only to God. Those other people were just there as renters and they were supposed to provide, but they were willing to kill any prophet who came through so that they could keep the fruit for themselves and even try to usurp the land and the city for themselves so they could finally own it. Because once you own it, like you said, hope and construction is what humans want. But with God, he has to destroy it to remind them that it does not belong to them and their hope in the work of their own hands will not save them. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what? will he do to those vine growers? This is something we've talked about in the past from the very early days of the podcast, Rich, namely the David-Nathan paradigm. He's asking them a question to entrap them, and their answer will condemn them. That is the system in Scripture. We are always condemned when we hear the text, and we are asked a question that requires a specific answer, so long as we are logical and reasonable and honest. Anyone hearing this story, even if they're dishonest, is going to react emotionally to the traitorous and dishonorable behavior of those who were working in the vineyard. They committed terrible deeds. It's kind of like when you are listening to a politician And the politician describes the other person as an abuser or a thief or someone who committed some terrible scandal. It's very easy for those hearing the politician throw dirt to react to the dirt. That's the David-Nathan paradigm, except the difference is the demagogue does it to get you to cheer for them. Scripture does it to consign you, as Paul would say, to judgment. The beauty of this parable is that it forces the listener to take a side. You know, you hear it in rhetoric where people take such crazy sides before they start looking into the question. Whereas here, a very difficult question is asked and they have to take a side, but it's the one that Jesus wants them to be on. When politicians, like you said, pose such a conundrum to people, it's so that the people clap for that politician. Whereas with Jesus, it's so that the listener looks harder at their own heart and understands the wickedness and the rottenness of their own actions, of their own root, hoping that the person would repent and turn to the wisdom that is being taught in this lesson and put their trust in God as opposed to the work of their own hands, trusting that whoever owns the city, they would pay the fruit that is due to its owner. Let me explain it in personal terms. Just a moment ago, I described the characters in the story as being terrible and despicable. In scriptural terms, as an addressee of this text, I, Mark Bulos, am condemning myself because, as the Apostle Paul would say, I am doing the very same things. 
That is the David-Nathan paradigm, and it is a real mechanism in Scripture. It keeps repeating itself. Scripture invites you to go on and on in your sermons about Pharisaism so that you are condemned as a Pharisee. That's how it works. If this parable were to take place in Minnesota, the landowners would not be killing and abusing the servants. They would be making excuses and blowing them off with passive aggression. They would come and say, hey, where's the fruit? And we'd say, yeah, about the fruit. It's been really hard this year. And the, Or, oh, yeah, we'll get you that fruit when we're good and ready. Thanks for asking. If the parable took place in Minnesota, the prophet would come to the church and announce the news of the Lord's wrath, and the pastor would say, all are welcome here in our parish, except those who have negative thoughts. We can't have those negative thoughts. We're very nice people here in Minnesota. Why are you so negative? And the funny thing is, when you talk that way, you're guilty of the blood of the martyrs because there is a price paid in blood for your unwillingness to submit to the negative words of the prophet. Every time we accept and digest the bitter pill of God's judgment, we are eating some of the suffering that is plaguing the weak. There's a connection. As I heard once in a beautiful Paschal sermon by Father Paul, he gave it on Holy Friday in his parish in Long Island, he explained to the community that you're going to have a feast this weekend, and for every one of you who enjoys a meal, there will be a hundred people who are suffering of hunger in this city. So what are you going to do about it? There's a connection between our discomfort and the well-being of the poor, which is a mechanism here in Matthew 21, because remember, Jesus camps in Bethany, not in Jerusalem. What Jesus is teaching is that the only thing the husbandman cares about, the owner of the land cares about, is producing the fruit. Because the problem is the self-righteous Minnesotan to say, oh, we would never beat up the servants. We prefer to just blow them off with passive aggression. Well, guess what? Whether you kill the servant or you blow them off, you did not produce the fruit. This is what God wants. God wants the fruit. And excuse and violence are the same in this parable because you're not giving the fruit to the owner of the vineyard. So the Romans might be violent in Jerusalem, where the priests are just mean. Either way, neither one is producing any fruit, so it doesn't matter. And this is how the judgment cuts across all sides, and all are guilty of judgment. They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at their proper seasons. Spoken like a true patriot who really cares about the republic and justice. And that's why you're condemned. The difficulty in a contemporary Western setting is that your civic duty is equated to an expression of your power. It's interesting that the only time we talk about civic duty is with respect to voting, and voting is the least profitable spiritually because you are manifesting your will against the body politic. No one talks about your civic duty with respect to the homeless 
we divert the discussion to a silly debate about the ismos. Am I a socialist or a capitalist? Who cares what you are? Your brother is hungry. But then we celebrate the fulfillment of our civic duty in voting against our brother. It's a problem in the fabric of the system. They feel very good about themselves that they properly judged the bad guy in the story. And this translation, wretches to wretched, on the one hand, is nice because it reflects the original Greek, kakos, kakos. It's a beautiful expression. It's someone who is transgressing the law of the Lord. Terrible ones, terribly, he will destroy those ones. The beauty of this parable, as you can see, what really got the goat of the listeners? How the servants were treated. Notice that the listeners didn't respond to the important question, which was, what about the fruit? He, they didn't say he's going to come and he's going to take his fruit. He said they're going to go and kill those servants because they did a bad job. The chief priests and the elders think that they're correct because they don't kill people. But they're incorrect, and the judgment is on them because they don't give the fruit of the land of the city to the one who owns the land, who owns the city. That's God. They do not produce the fruit, and they completely missed it in the parable. So that gives Jesus the perfect opportunity to follow up with further teaching. I just want to comment also that this idea of payment, although it's not made explicit here in verse 41, Richard, is a double-edged sword. It's always a double-edged sword because in the end, everyone gets what's coming to them in the proper season in Scripture. This is the gospel of Matthew 25. There is a coming judgment. Even in the structure of the parable, it is linked to the payment due those who are wicked or wretched because if they can't pay what they owe the master in the appropriate season, they will get what's coming to them in the appropriate season. Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? That's a nuclear bomb. The Lord of the harvest just asked the teachers in Jerusalem, did you never read the scriptures? <laughs> He's not being polite and saying, hey, have you seen this passage? He's telling them, don't you know what you're talking about? You're supposed to know the law and the prophets. Haven't you read scripture? That's the spirit of the question. And then he proceeds to quote the psalm. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the consolidation of the condemnation of what they're trying to build in Jerusalem. They're building something with stone, but the father of Jesus is building something not by the hand of man, and the cornerstone is his son, his flesh and blood son. Because the Lord is interested in the body politic of Jesus Christ. He's not interested in what we construct. He's interested in building a community of those who would obey his instruction. That is what the Father builds through Jesus. 
That is why Jesus is referred to as the carpenter's son in the Gospels. What's being built is the way in Acts, the teaching. You're building up the teaching. You're building up a community of followers of this instruction who walk according to its precepts. This is what is marvelous. But in order to build that, you have to tear down the things that human beings value. It's linked. That's why there's hope in destruction of what human beings construct. We're interested in what the Father constructs. When you read this psalm, the psalmist is talking about the salvation of God. And it's in very concrete terms. In any action movie, from Indiana Jones to Star Wars, there's always that scene where the door is being closed and you have to jump through that last or jump under or slide or somehow make it through that door at the last minute. Why? Because on that other side, you're safe. Your enemies can't get you. In the psalm, it's talking about the city and the walls and being attacked by enemies. So the psalmist talks about entering into the gates of the city. Rather than slowly closing and you have to jump through at the last minute, these gates are run by the king of the city, and that king is the Lord. If he's favorably inclined to you, he'll let you in the gates. If he's not, he doesn't let you in the gates. And if you're inside the gates, you're safe from your enemies. If you're outside the gates, you're at the mercy of your enemy. The psalmist is entreating the help of the Lord so that he can be in these gates and have salvation. He doesn't gain salvation for himself if he gets through. He enjoys the salvation and the victory of God because once you're in the city of God, it's protected from the outside. Just because you entered in the city, no matter what your rank is, do not think you're running the city now. (laughs) It is the Lord's city. Now, you have a city... And the base of the foundation of the walls is the cornerstone. And the builders are like, yeah, I don't know about that stone. I don't know if it's going to hold. This is the Lord's city. That wall is going to hold because it is the Lord's. The problem is that the builders don't respect the literal and metaphorical premise of this city that makes this city safe that makes this city salvation, that offers safety to those whom the Lord allows into his city. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We can't understand that that stone, which looks like it wouldn't hold up this city, somehow it upholds this city, which is the problem all throughout the Gospels. How can this one on the cross be the Son of God? How can this one who is crucified be reigning and be the judge? How can this one be demonstrating the favor of the city when obviously he's outside the city and he's vulnerable to his enemies? We can't understand this. The cornerstone of the city that makes this city safe, that makes this city salvation, it's incomprehensible to anyone who's building cities because human beings build cities in the way that human beings build cities. But the Lord's building, the cornerstone that makes it safe, that makes it salvation, is the cross. It is the dependency of Jesus on his Father to the point that he gives up his entire will, even when his bodily biological safety is at risk. 
he still trusts in the Lord. And that's what you read in the psalm in Psalm 118, is that no matter what happens, the psalmist has trust in the Lord and will provide to the Lord what he asks out of thanksgiving for the salvation that he offers by allowing him to be a citizen, which comes from the word for kiwitas, which means city, citizen of the Lord's kingdom. Here's the interesting thing about this metaphor of the Lord being the cornerstone, Jesus being the cornerstone. If your city is besieged, as you find in Isaiah, where the king didn't trust and cheated on the Lord, he was shaking in his boots. Remember King Ahaz? If you go to a king like Ahaz and say, look, here's how we know things are going to be fine. Women are going to have children. King's going to look at you like you're nuts. If your city is besieged and you go to the local military commander and say, look, you're building a wall with sandbags. Let's stop. See this bag that you have in the middle that kind of supports the whole wall? Let's pull it out and let's put the teaching of the Lord there. The wall's going to collapse. So you're asking the people to trust in the safety of something by not defending it. But it is safe because it has nothing to do with what you want to defend. It's a trick. So Jerusalem may be overrun, Ahaz. In fact, it will be. But that's okay because they could blow up Jerusalem a thousand times. They still can't get rid of the scroll of the law. The scroll will be victorious because it still applies after you're surrounded by rubble. This attitude is captured in the tradition of the Akathist hymn to the Theotokos because you have a city besieged by foreign armies and everybody gets up and carries a picture of a woman holding her baby and marches around the walls of the city. To me, that's a powerful symbol that you are besieged by armies and your only bulwark, your only defense is a woman holding a baby, the picture of Mary with Jesus. It's for me, reminiscent of Isaiah. Isaiah is not predicting the birth of Jesus. The idea that a woman will give birth to a child is meant to signify that even after you're destroyed, my teaching will still bear fruit. So I really don't care. I can make a virgin womb bear fruit. That's the sign. You might get wiped out, Ahaz. I don't care. That's what the Lord is saying that's the interesting twist is are you willing to accept your destruction on hope that the teaching will have victory that's what a true pastor is are you willing to see past your ministry or your community or your group and not worry so much about what happens to you but worry about the victory of the teaching Because in the case of Orthodox tradition, had Constantinople been wiped out, I mean, who cares? It's another earthly city like Jerusalem. Big deal. But the teaching of the nativity of Jesus Christ, represented by a woman holding her baby, would still be victorious. So they were correct to put their faith in that teaching. And that's how we have to start thinking And it only works when we accept our defeat on the cross. That is what we're talking about when we talk about destruction. Therefore, I say to you, 
the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. You've been insisting, Richard, and you are correct in holding fast to this important repetitive point in Matthew 21 that is linked to the destruction of Jerusalem, that you need to bear fruit. That is why I'm bringing the image of Mary into this discussion, because the metaphor of a pregnant woman is the metaphor in Scripture of a pregnant community that bears fruit. But the seed has to come from God the Father through his wisdom. You did not produce the fruit, which is actually the question at hand. Did you produce the fruit? Did you render the fruits? Did you offer the fruits to the one who owns the land? That was the agreement. The elders and the chief priests thought that they were good because they don't kill servants. They don't kill prophets. What Jesus said is that, number one, you rejected the very teaching that the prophets and the servants were trying to teach you. You rejected them. You rejected the very premise of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is this land, and it's going to be given to another nation. It's going to be given to another group of renters. You abdicated by not upholding your end of the agreement. Your end of the agreement was to render the fruits. You decided you wanted to look good by not killing prophets, but you didn't listen to them. And what they were bringing you was actually the teaching saying, I am the premise, which they were saying in the name of the Lord. And because I'm the premise, you owe me my fruit. And they said, yeah, 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 yeah. They neither accepted the premise nor render the fruits. And they thought they were good because all they did was ignore the premise. And that was good in their mind. I mean, this is the thing that's very sick in the way that we understand this is so many Christians believe that they vote and they've done something. They don't steal and they don't kill. Therefore, they've done something. And what Jesus is saying here is that unless you have render the fruits You haven't done anything, and therefore, they're going to be kicked out, and someone else is going to be put in. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The things that you build are scattered. The things that you try to make will eventually disappear. They'll have no real substance. So in this sense, you're going to stumble on God's law and you're going to disappear. You're going to fade away like wax before the fire. You're nothing. You're vanos. The thing you think has substance is your construction of stone. This is Genesis, right? The dynasties of men. But what God makes with his instruction has substance, even though in Matthew you can't lay your hands on it because it's the treasure in the heavens. The thing that makes the city secure is the thing that makes the walker stumble. Why? It's only because you don't have the light, which Scripture is, which shows you the way, so that you don't stumble. You stumble on the very premise that upholds this entire city. And I love the emphasis you put, Father, on this crushing and the grinding of the powder. Is it dust or is it flour? As we say, grist for the mill, so that the mill continues to grind producing that thing which is needed to produce the loaf in Hosea. The Lord is a baker, and he's trying to produce a loaf of goodness. And 
the oven is his people. So he puts the dough of Torah in and hopes to get a nice loaf of bread afterwards. But sometimes the oven is not a good oven and it doesn't produce what it has to produce. And so you have to go and you have to grind again and grind again and grinding eventually. So you get this loaf in the end. The wheat never wins. (laughs) in the bread-making process. It's all about the baker. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. (laughs) Good for them. They got it. They got it. That's how you have to hear it. Now, Jesus is not speaking about you and I. He's speaking about these characters in the story who also happen to be the authors. So we can't say he's speaking to us. We have to see that he is speaking to them and then have some humility that unlike us, they understand the judgment is against them and then understand how the judgment applies to us. But we're not important enough to count ourselves Pharisees and chief priests. We just aren't that important. There's no space on the page for our names or our community, or the time in which we live, or the country in which we live, we're not mentioned in the story, so we can't get too excited. It is funny that the Pharisees came in here, because before, when Jesus started, it was the chief priests and the elders. Now it's the chief priests and the Pharisees. The chief priests belong there in Jerusalem. The chief priests are in charge of the temple. Of course, they're teaching and stuff, but their function is servants at the Lord's table, whereas Pharisees are teachers. They can teach from anywhere. Either way, the parables are spoken against them, against all the rulers of the community who are not producing the fruit. It's actually worse for the Pharisees, Richard, because to the extent that the chief priests were tied to the temple cult and the Pharisees were pushing outward toward the synagogue, the Pharisees should know better their responsibility to bear fruit because they claim, as you said, to be the teachers, not the cultic facilitators. And here they're demoted to the same level as the chief priest. Now you say demoted and you say, why Father Mark? They're the chief priests. Well, because you still think that worldly station is important. That's why you don't understand. From the perspective of the story, If the Pharisee is supposed to be elevated as a teacher, he's being demoted here. That's the key. I I really appreciate your insight, Rich, that suddenly they're brought in and paired with the chief priests. It's a slap. And to some degree, the fact that they understand they're being judged actually makes it worse. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. They fear not the prophet— They fear the people who are the source of their earthly power because the people fear the stone which the builders have rejected. The people may not understand the relationship between Jesus and their security in an anti-security sense, but they at least are willing to receive him as the emissary of God the Father carrying his judgment the way all the prophets have carried their judgment to the vine dressers. In this sense, they recognize that just as the son is murdered in the parable, the people may murder them. They should be fearless. They shouldn't care what the people think. We've talked about this. 
the great sin of any religious teacher is to base anything they say or do on what the people want or what the people think. It's almost impossible for American pastors to grasp this, whatever cultural background they come from, because we really believe in democratia. We believe in democracy, the will of the people. But in a community not made by the hand of man, it's the will of God that is the matter at hand through his instruction, and it's immutable. So what does it matter what the people think? What does it matter what armies are amassing outside the city? Whether the army invades or not, you still have to preach the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ. So why waste time collecting guns? Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.